Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, summer's starting to come to San Francisco. Carl, the fog is coming out. So I, 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 I couldn't understand you. What did you say? Uh, summer is starting so, to start come. again. I know. I, 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 I could not understand you. So we'll just start again. Uh, was that because of Skype, or was that because you couldn't understand a word of what I said? I couldn't understand what you said. It was it was oh a my. combination of accent and mumble. I wasn't quite sure. <laughs> wow. What is coming right. to San Francisco? Summer. Yeah, but after that. Carl the Fog is coming out. Oh, Carl. Okay. Yeah. Mate, you, you need to hang around with more Australians. We chop our words in half because we're just so lazy when it comes to... Like our own country, we call it Australia because we can't be bothered to say the first couple of syllables. Now I kind of want to include this part. <laughs> our thanks to MailChimp for sponsor. How do you say MailChimp? MailChimp? Wow. <laughs> see, when, when money's on the line, your articulation is perfect. I see how it goes. Our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent. MailChimp does integrations from WordPress to Facebook, Shopify to Magento. MailChimp integrates with the apps and web services you use every day. You can use MailChimp with hundreds of powerful web services. You can sync the applications you use to run your business and break down data styles between platforms. Your workflow becomes more efficient. That extra time once you focus on increasing engagement and revenue. I use MailChimp integrations to make sure all my members get emails so i can attest that it works our thanks to mailchimp for sponsoring exponent and unlike the australian co-host it doesn't drop syllables (laughs) uh this so we have actually lots of topics to talk about i know you are very itchy to talk about uh one that we very rarely Mm. talk about uh uh, there is a bit of suspense about what that might be but i did want to i did want to comment briefly uh about about the piece I wrote yesterday, uh, which was Google and the Google I.O. Mm. And basically, my my framing here was it was kind of boring. The keynote was kind of boring. And that that's a great thing. I mean, sometimes boring is good because boring in, in some like what what is the opposite of boring? It's sort of like unexpected, right? It's something that's that's out of the blue. And there's certainly a bias towards that. And this is something that Apple has been criticized or alternately praised for, depending on, on what it is. Mm. You know, that oh, we want something new, we want something interesting, we want something exciting. And what what did Google present? They presented a bunch of like machine learning powered features and products to 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 what they do. And it's like, well, of course Google did that as all our first on talent, but we watch people snarking on Twitter. But if you if you think about it, what 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 would you have them do otherwise? I mean, this is exactly the right play. It is it is very common for folks to get bored and to have short attention spans and focus on right now. But they are exactly right. In the same way that cloud and mobile has transformed computing, the application of intelligence like this to using big data sets and getting machines to learn and all the things that we've talked about, uh, this is going to be a huge aspect of computing going forward. And I think it's phenomenal that they have the focus on this specific topic and it keeps coming up and up and up. I, I agree with you. I think it's a great thing. Well, it's not just a great thing, but it also is a change. I mean, six months ago, I wrote about it and I and we podcasted about the the Pixel phone and the fact that Google was was pretty clear that the Google Assistant was exclusive to the Pixel, and you could understand the sort of thinking here. The problem with Google Assistant and voice interfaces is it doesn't really fit with Google's business model, mm. that, which is to to show you options, and some of those options are paid for. And when you click the option that is paid for, Google makes money, and yep. and it, it's it's a it's a wonderful system that that 
basically has all the incentives lined up in, in for everyone that involved. I mean, you could argue Google's taking it a bit far in mobile, in which kind of like the first two screens are, are all ads at this point. But by and large, it's, it's a model that works for everyone. And what, what you can see it when models work for everyone, that's when there's all kinds of money to be made. And certainly mm. Google has made all kinds of money. But in voice, it starts to get a little dodgy. So you saw Google doing this phone and differentiating it at the same time you saw Samsung coming out with their own assistant and Huawei come out with their own assistant it's weird this bifurcation is sort of happening and but maybe Google realizes they need to make money in a new way and and that was surprising it was interesting it was a lot to talk about yeah just backing up for folks who might not have been with us for the last year that the options lend themselves well to advertising but in a in a world of voice where you have an artificial intelligence uh, or AI helping you find the best option, there aren't options to monetize. Uh, if I have an AI assistant, I just want it to return the best restaurant or the thing that most meets my needs, not the one that someone's paying Google the most to be at the top of the search results. And that cause that that that's difficult to monetize that's for for Google anyway, it's very difficult difficult to monetize. And then they started to say, well, what? how could we potentially do this? And it's like, actually, if we sell people hardware and the service comes along for free, then that works. That That's a model that might work. The problem is, of course, slotting that into the culture of Google and where Google differentiates and, and how it goes to market. It is a services company, not a hardware product company. And the other thing is Google Assistant wasn't really established as a reason to buy. It was a brand, it was a brand new thing. If, if Google search which someone knew was something that they wanted, if that was only available on one phone, that's one thing, right? But to have a Google mm. Assistant, like how do you use that as a marketing lever when it's not established in people's minds and awareness that's something that you need? And so and so you saw Google, like they they backtracked. In, in December or January, they announced, oh, actually, uh, Assistant's going to be available broadly on, on Android going forward. And now it is on on. You know, it's on phones that are being sold today. And people are like, oh, maybe that was the plan all along. But no, if you go back and you listen to Google's rhetoric and you observe the actions of the people in the ecosystem, either there was just a complete failure of communication or there was a, a change in approach that happened. And and the I guess what was encouraging about I.O., about this presentation, was at the end of the day, Google is really good at services that are broadly available that gather lots of data and use that data to iterate and make the services better such mm. that they can get even more users and get more data. And the sort of virtuous cycle that I talked about this article and that is the foundation of, of like aggregation theory. And mm. and it's good. And so the business model parts issues remain. And I, I don't want to give short shrift to them as I think I might have did a little bit in this article like the issue is still there it's not clear how Google will make money in the long run as paradigm shift away from away from search to the extent that they do but that said I feel more comfortable about Google doing stuff that they're good at that aligns to their strengths that aligns to their culture mm -hmm. then I even if the business model is fuzzy then I do about them doing things where the business model is much clearer, but it does it's not really a match for what Google is at its core. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. And this is 
it would be this is a, actually a really difficult situation to be in because you don't want to find yourself in a juncture where what's best from an organizational perspective and what's best from a business model perspective lead you to different conclusions but you take a look at the history of Google it has always been one of these companies that has been technology first like they emerged on the basis of their technology and the business model was figured out at scale they probably had some inkling you know we get enough people we can run ads but they figured out the adwords model at scale they solved the technology first and that was the lesson they've learned and that's the way they like to do things now a lot has changed since then like particularly the the parameters of the open web which meant that it's a it's a open market where the best technology can win because it's open for all to compete and that's changed a lot since when google first started nevertheless if forced into the situation that you just described i would make the same decision i would be like okay if figure out how to create value and then we'll figure out the business model we'll ha- there'll, there'll be something somewhere must be, hopefully. You just put your finger on the big issue. I, I wrote a piece last year after last year's Google I.O., which is Google's go-to-market problem. And it is just as applicable this year as it was last year. Mm. Google has this great technology. The question is how do they actually get it in front of people, actually mm. make it so people can use it. And and what was encouraging, the other thing that was encouraging about this year is that last year they they kind of muddled stuff. They made it more difficult than it needed to be. So for example, Google Assistant was available, but it was available via Allo, which was their latest attempt to break into messaging. And it's like, again, it was the same sort of thinking with the Pixel phone where it's like, oh, we have this we think we're going to have the best assistant, which, by the way, I suspect they will in the long run. It's already, you know, actually, I already think it's already the best one, but they were already using it as leverage to build something else when actually they have a much more immediate problem, which is people simply being able to use the assistant. So contrast that to this year where there is an actual Google Assistant app on iPhone. I don't think it's great yet, but that if I want assistant, I use the assistant app. I don't like have to go through this weird rigmarole to use a messaging app that none of my friends and family are on and, and then get to it. It's so it's so easy to layer on too many features and try to accomplish mm. too many goals at once. And the problem is, even if the functionality of Assistant and Allo was identical to the functionality of Assistant and the Assistant standalone app, having more stuff, more crap sitting around makes that functionality feel less, less useful. It's, it's kind of like the newspaper problem we talked about last week. Or, or the watch problem where they lay it on all the things straight away without getting those core value propositions right. And yes. plus, it just, it just assumes that it's, it's such a like we have a thing and we're going to sell it to you type mentality. And it just assumes because we're Google, people are going to invest all the mental cycles to figure out exactly what this is. And when they see the incredible value of what it is, there'll be no way but for them to use it, even if we make them jump through the hoops of yet another messaging app that they probably don't need after downloading Hangouts and Talk and everything else that Google's attempted to do over the years. And I agree with you, like getting straight to the point and establish the value. And once you have the beachhead of the value, then figure out how you can take it to other places if necessary. Yeah, I mean, just it, it's hard to get people to use your stuff if it's not the default. I mean, iOS is the is the example of this. More people use Apple Maps than use Google Maps, mm. even though it's not it's not even comparable. And and yeah, come at me, <laughs> Apple fans. It's not. It's an, it, and it, if you live abroad, it's even more so. But even in the U.S., I mean, I I go, every time I go back this summer, I I give Apple Maps a fair shake, and just. It's it, whatever. I'm not going to get into it. It's it's not. It, 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 sorry, it's getting better. How about I, that? 
it's getting better, but Google Maps is getting better also. Uh, it, yeah. <laughs> anyhow. But even then, it in my mind, it's clearly superior, but it, it's still the usage is not even close because defaults defaults matter. And it's it's <laughs> I don't know. It's funny seeing people defend Apple Maps. If you want to defend Apple Maps and say that the quality is comparable to Google Maps, I think you're insane. But that's fine. At least that's a legitimate oh, wow. argument. People ben, who defend you just Apple lit up our inboxes. <laughs> whatever. People who defend Apple Maps by saying that it is better than Google Maps because more people use it. That's like, I don't like that. That's defending monopolistic behavior. I mean, again, Apple. The iPhone is not a monopoly, so it it is like it's not going to be prosecuted. But the reality is, Apple is leveraging its dominance in the iOS iPhone market to, and the net result is people using an inferior product because it, it it's good enough. And again, it's open; people could choose to use something else. But I, I I don't know. I guess I don't get the rush to defend this in as the glories of 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 I, you know whatever. I mean, we we've got into the. We've got into the Apple fanatic thing before, and I mean, like I said, I've been guilty of it. I think, obviously, saying that because more people use it is better is not an argument that uh, that uh, Apple proponents really want to be uh, <laughs> carrying yeah, on that, too Right, much. exactly. That, that's exactly it. That means Android is better. That means Windows right. is better. Exactly. Yes. I, I, right. Yes. Right. We, should, uh, now, we should move on before yes, we now get... Yes, now, <laughs> now that we've blown up, blown up the podcast. Uh, the... <laughs> Anyhow, the point being, it's hard to win users when you're not the default. Like that, yeah. it, it it just is. And for my perspective, I think that is an argument. I wish we had fewer defaults and more open competition. But that's the environment in which Google emerged, and that's the environment in which they learned that lesson. That just like the best technology wins. But that in, it is not that the world is not in that environment anymore. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think this is the mistake that is made frequently in in tech analysis is because Mm. the tech is really hard and and it's what what these companies do is amazing. And also because that's sort of what people can wrap their heads around and what they're familiar with. There's a real tendency to presume that tech does always win. And the the truth is, and this is a point you've made in this podcast, you made repeatedly, the initial web was like a was the exception it was not the rule at all i I mean on the open web when all websites were equal like it was literally just depending on which letters you typed in the browser that both resulted in a ton of websites and also meant that the best that is google could rise to the top google relative to alta vista relative to excite relative to yahoo was they're all on the same playing field. And even if the other ones had like distribution arrangements where they were sort of the default, changing it was so trivial and getting the new one was so easy that it allowed just Google's massive technical superiority and in, in to rise to the top. And they could win by being the best. And again, I know we've made this point before, but it's worth reemphasizing that Google is the exception that proves the rule. They are a company that has consistently won by being, or they won their foundation of their business, which is search, won by being better. It didn't win by owning distribution. Now, 
have they benefited from owning distribution? Absolutely. They, that's why they invested in Android. That's why they pay a ton of money to Apple. Like one of the most fascinating things to track, and I've been doing this every earnings, the daily update, is tracking Google's uh, cost to acquire. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but they pay money to acquire to acquire search, which is basically they do a revenue share on like every search in Safari, and so that's a way to sort. And they also pay OEMs who have you know Google who run Android, and it's actually a proxy to track the rise of mobile in Google is the rise of their spending in this category. But the general, but that all derives from the original power they gained from simply, you know, sort of being the best. Right. Uh, but it's e- even, even being the best, they recognize the extent to which the fact that there is now someone between them and the customer that can change the default, just like what happened, what we described with maps, right? Like even if the, even if the alternative is inferior, the power of that default and that that person owning the customer relationship and getting to change it, even if they allow the option for the customer to come along and change it back, the power of that default and owning the customer relationship is so critical. And Google is, even with better technology, is beholden to those people who own the customer. Yep, that's a, that's a great point. It's called TAC, Traffic Acquisition Cost. It's now more than 10% of Google Properties advertising revenue, which which is a a significant increase from being like 4 or 5% just a couple of years ago. And it, it makes the point. Even though, like Google has every possible advantage when it comes to search. It's well known. Everyone knows what it is. It's it's superior. It's better than all the alternatives. And even then, they have to pay a lot of money, like to the tune of billions of dollars, to make sure that it is used on mobile because defaults are so powerful. Defaults have always been powerful, but on mobile, they're massively more powerful because convenience trumps everything. It, it really, really does. And the fact that search has to pay to make sure it's used, it, it really emphasizes, like, and this is why I almost felt I was a little sheepish, not sheepish, but. I, w- I almost felt the piece yesterday was a little too optimistic. I'm optimistic in that I feel good about companies when they are doing what they are best at and they're aligned with that. I just think it, it, you get better products, you do better work, you make breakthroughs you wouldn't have otherwise as opposed to when you're going through the motions because of mm. for business model reasons. But I'm, mm. I'm still nervous about this go-to-market issue. It's really hard and it's, not, it's a problem they haven't, they, they haven't proven they can solve. This gets at one of my deep found frustrations, I guess, with Silicon Valley, which is, yes, technology is super important. And folks, uh, a lot of folks are out here, engineers creating amazing stuff. And this is not to downplay, like that, they are a big part of the reason why this works. But because sometimes this business stuff feels fluffy and it's hard it's it's not as hard as the engineering stuff people downplay its importance but the extent to which business like good business can override or completely uh, result in engineering not mattering at all is so essential. And so oftentimes when people do analysis of how companies are going to perform or what's going to happen in the future, it's just people fall into this trap of, of downplaying the importance of the business side of things and going straight into the feeds and speeds, as we've described it, or the pure technology. And it is such a mistake because this is a great example where you can have the best technology and you're already well-known on and doing super, super well. And it's still not enough because they recognize that uh, one of these companies who owns the customer flicks a switch and then 
people don't really care. Like the the web browser still uh, returns me search results that are good enough. Like this is fine. Yeah, it's such a great point. I mean, we have to admit we are obviously both biased because we are both business people. So of course we are sure. going to say that the business part is hard. I think the issue is that the business things are easier. The business aspects of a of a product are in some respects easier to understand. I mean, I, yes, I make a living explaining them, but I, I hopefully I, I explain them to extent that anyone can kind of understand them. So the equivalent of me for like technical how these products actually work, like self driving cars or search. Mm. No one is going to be writing a a blog that is explaining how this stuff works at a, at a level that's actually applicable and useful, right? Mm-hmm. E- either you have to write at a very, very deep technical level, in which case your audience has to have all kinds of training and understanding to even know what you're talking about, or you're writing at a very superficial level such that it's not really useful. And right. so the, the ability to understand the amount of, of training and experience that, that it takes to understand the technical side is so much greater than the business side. The difference, though... And what I think people, this gets to your point, what people don't appreciate is the tech can be understood and it's a problem that's fundamentally under your control. You just have to figure it out. The problem with business is it's so much harder to execute because it involves things you don't control, particularly end users. You don't control them. You don't control their preferences. You can't make them do it. You can't just figure it out through sheer force of will. And that's why the the business side may be easy to understand, but it's so much more difficult to execute. Whereas yes. the the technical side is, I would argue, is the opposite. Well, I, and I think there's a there's an effect that also compounds exactly what you've just described, which is if a business person walks into an engineering meeting and hears the terms that an engineer is throwing around, they, they everybody recognizes that the business guy doesn't know what's going on. But the reverse isn't necessarily true. If an engineer walks into a business meeting, they can kind of understand what's going on. And the softer the subject gets and the more that it feels like everybody can understand, so go all the way to the end, something like marketing, the more everyone thinks that they can do it without necessarily going to the level of understanding that's necessary to get it right. It's almost like a two by two. And on one axis, it's how easy it is to understand that can I actually pass like the how words approachable that are, is it exactly versus how difficult is it and people assume those two things are perfectly correlated and they are not it's another good point because i think the, the, the two axes are approachability and difficulty and what i think is yes. hard to appreciate is that the the fact that marketing for example is so approachable and anyone can have an opinion on it that almost that actually gets at why it's so difficult to do. Right. Because you're, you're competing against everyone, right? Because everyone is trying. It's like writing text on the internet. It's yes. really easy to write text on the internet. So do, compare text on the internet versus video on the internet. Text on the internet yeah. is a more – you actually have to be better to win at text on the internet because mm. your competition – the price – it's so the barrier to entry is so low. You're competing against literally everyone – in the history of being on the internet. Whereas video, like say, like Netflix type video, yes, Netflix has competitors, but the very price of entry to make highly produced dramas or whatever it might be is so high that like the, the amount of people you're competing with is also is also lower. That doesn't mean, again, it, both are hard, but the, the, the types of hard are different, if, if that makes yes. sense. That's 
that's a perfect articulation of it, right? And I think people will appreciate with something like writing, oh, I mean, I know how to write. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm a good writer. But somehow that recognition when it comes to this business stuff, there are a lot of folks who just assume, oh, it's fine. I understand the words. I can do it. And as long as we get the engineering right, it's it's going to be all okay. And it's, I, I guess what I hope people are taking away from this conversation so far is that is not how the world works anymore. Yeah, we're probably being unfair because the engineering part is still really important and it's really oh, hard. Totally. I think, oh, my I think gosh. The, so, no, but in some respects, we're like doing the opposite, which I hope is useful for effect, right? It, like for all, the, for all our engineering friends that are listening to us and pulling, and pulling your hair out, uh, it's the same thing on both sides. Both matter. The, and what makes both hard differs, though. And I think your point about approachability is really spot on because – it's obvious on the face of it why engineering is hard. And it's not obvious on the face of it why business is hard. But that it's still it's still hard. Both are hard and both are essential. And Google winning sh- by the sheer force of engineering is the exception. It's not it's not the way things usually go down. Right. Which is kind of the segue that I wanted to make to the topic that you alluded to right at the start, which is that of self-driving cars. And our good old friends at Uber have been in the news recently. But before we dive into that, I still find it a source of frustration that folks assume that that the topic of self-driving cars is purely one of technology and they discount the importance of the business side of things. And I really feel for the reasons that we just talked about, that the business side of things is actually more predictive of success in this field than the engineering alone. Because the business once you build the business and you you the set of incentives inside the organization start to evolve and the thing that has always fascinated me about Uber is they have managed to put themselves in a situation where self-driving cars are a sustaining uh, a sustaining innovation like if they deploy self-driving cars just every extra self-driving car that they deploy into their fleet helps make them more money and that is an incredible incentive to get that technology right it's worth reiterating this because i know we mentioned it we mentioned it rarely but it's so critical to understand the point that you just made so disruptive technology the, the difference between disruptive and sustained technology is that both are new technologies that come to the market disruptive technology though comes with a new business model where sustaining technology plugs into the existing business mm. model. And in the context of self-driving cars, Uber is disruptive to the business model of transportation broadly because the current business model of transportation is individually owned cars and individually operated cars. And those are two sort of distinct but interrelated aspects. And so Uber mm-hmm. coming along in that now it's not an individually owned car nor is it an individually operated car. It is a different it's a different technology and it's a different business model because you're renting instead of instead of buying. Whereas once you have the model of renting transportation, it doesn't matter whether that transportation is driven by a human or whether it's driven by a computer. It's the same business model. And that's your point, that, that self-driving cars for a Uber-type business is sustaining innovation, which means – and this is the, the super important thing – if self-driving cars appeared tomorrow and everyone had access to self-driving cars, the winner would be Uber. Like the, because, because they already have all the other pieces in place. To build up the network, to build up the apps on everyone's phones, to build up the customer awareness, to build up the habits takes is 
is very difficult, particularly when someone is already there. And this is again. This is, I guess, the flip side of the the my frustration because the number of times I'll have this conversation with folks, and it's just almost assumed that Google is going to win this because their technology is so far in front. Yeah, again. Technology is incredibly important, and I'm not downplaying that, not for a second. I would be crazy to, but it it is it, the statement is made almost in the absence of everything you just said, which is understanding the way these things play out, just like uh, the, the equivalent with the browser. Like you can have the best technology, but if someone else owns the customer. Google is having to pay 10% of their revenues, their search revenues to stay as the default because they know if they get removed, most people aren't going to change it back. Like there is an equivalent at work here in the self-driving space and having the fleet deployed and having the customers and having the business generating money that enables you to pay to keep developing the technology is such an incredible advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And it's particularly the more and this is the more something is routine and something you do all the time, actually, Mm. the harder it is to break in with an alternative because habit is like the best lock in ever. (laughs) You know, you have to be we we talked about this last we've talked about this a few times in the last few podcasts, the sort of difficulty in in leap why some countries and places leapfrog, whereas others get stuck on a standard because Mm. the the degree of improvement necessary is significant. Now, that's obviously much greater in highly networked sort of things like payments, for example. Whereas, you know, if you are in Silicon Valley where Lyft liquidity is is just as good as Uber liquidity, the cost of switching is 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 lower. But if you're in other localities where Uber is consistently three minutes away and Lyft is consistently eight minutes away, it's very hard for Lyft to ever close that gap because the People are going to keep using Uber because it's better, which means the drivers are going to have their Uber. You know, even if they have both apps, they're going to be doing Uber rides more. They're going to have the app open more more often, mm-hmm. and it's going to, it's a self reinforcing cycle. Mm-hmm. And this is why this is the sort of been the sort of foundation why you know I think both of us have traditionally been not just bulls about the sort of transportation as a service, but also sort of Uber specifically because I think there are aspects that drive towards a winner-take-all market, and given that Uber was so dominant, you would expect in the long run that they would that they would win it all, even just even with all the troubles, even with all the 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 things that are that are going on, and not to excuse them the slightest. Just we're talking at you know sort of nuts and bolts. Who's gonna who's going to win? And I guess which brings us to the point of the rest of today's podcast. Despite all those advantages, despite being in that position, it it actually seems that over what's happened the last few weeks, they have actually managed to jeopardize the incredible position that they have found themselves in to the point where, I mean, yes, all, like you said, all these things that have happened around the harassment and the treatment of people and so they are terrible, but I didn't think they would threaten the company's position. But what's happened to wit around the, the bringing in of the auto folks and how that now looks like it may have been a little bit shady and how they uh, a, a little bit shady now is, ha- is an understatement a little bit i i, I mean i i think that is a, a a bit of an understatement but also the news that google has decided to partner with lyft suddenly google's technology has a go to market yeah the the, the google partnership with lyft is the again not, i'm not saying worse from like a moral sense but from a 
viability of Uber being a profitable company in the long run is one of the most devastating pieces of news I, I can imagine. It's 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 unbelievably bad for Uber. So there's actually two reasons why it's devastating. The second one is actually, I think, more important than the first. But, but we'll, I'll say that for a moment. The first one is the one you just said, which is that Google now has a, a go-to-market for their product. And what I think people don't People f- know that Google Ventures is one of the early investors, in, relatively early mm. investors in Uber. Not not that early. I think they're Series B or Series C or something like that, uh, like after Benchmark. But I think they were the, they were the round after after that. What people forget, and here, <laughs> if we want to talk about media bias, uh, there was an article in, in the in the New York Times this week about how. Klanik City at Code Conference and Google talking about self-driving cars and how he realizes he needed to respond. Buried at the bottom of that article was a very important factoid, which was that the Google board member uh, or the Uber board member from Google, David Drummond, called up Travis Klanik a few hours or the night before that presentation where Google showed off their their self-driving car and said, oh, uh, by the way, we're going to show a self-driving car tomorrow, and we're going to talk about that. It's going to be used in a ride-sharing service. And then, that, and then, and then, that is insane. It is insane. And it, that, that article in New York Times made me so mad because like, it totally changed the tenor of, of, of what actually happened. And what happened was like, Google was so flaky that an hour later they called back and said, oh, actually, we're not doing that. We're just going to show the car. We're not going to do ride-sharing service. Never mind. But it was done. That's the re- that's the Google is the cause of the Uber-Google divorce, not Uber, even though everyone frames Uber as being the bad guy. Google is the one who was invested in Uber and came and said, oh, by the way, we're going to fuck you. <laughs> so, so just to be clear about what happened, and that's what drove sort of the Uber response in building their own self-driving cars, was Google's like, yeah, we're going to undercut you and, and destroy your business, by the way. Oh, actually, no, we're not. But at that point, I think the response was understandable. I mean- Oh, it was totally understandable. I mean, you have built a relationship up with someone who's invested in your organization. And this is this is a relationship with a company that has incredible resources. And you realize that just flippantly, almost like a giant wandering around stepping on things, they're like, oh, we're going to do this. Oh, maybe we won't. Like you realize how the extent to which you are beholden to uh, you're beholden to the relationship with this organization and the fact that they can say they're going after you and change their minds that quickly, it doesn't give you a lot of faith that things are going to necessarily work out well in the future, does it? Right, and, th- and this is why I, I also have always blamed Google for the Apple-Google divorce. It, it, yes, same thing. I mean, in some, it, I think the Apple-Google one is more complicated because the reality is that Apple was never going to serve the entire world. Like someone is going to serve the, the low end and as we've discussed, the idea of a multi-touch sort of interface on a rectangular device is one of those things that how else are you going to build a phone going forward, right? All credit to Apple for inventing it, but but you know it's just it's sort of an inevitability, like the GUI was, right? Does Apple get credit for the GUI? You know, well, it was actually Xerox Park, and then Windows Xerox, did it. Yeah. it. Like, did was Windows doing it? Yes, they borrowed from, but you know, it's it again. I totally get. Both, we're not going to relitigate this. We get this is what we get more email about than anything. But it, anyhow, just generally speaking, it's a little more complicated because someone was going to take that low end market, and if not Google, it would have been Windows. Would have been it would have been you know someone someone would have taken that market. So all that being said, Google still managed to make it. Uh, 
still managed to make it adversarial enough that it, it came to blows. There was a possibility, like Apple was well-served and Apple's customers were well-served by having Google Maps, having a company that does services, internet services, which as we've talked about a number of times is not Apple's strength. Having a company, having them partnership there, okay, we recognize you're going to go after the low end, but the way in which it played out and the extent of the way in which Schmidt brought it to Jobs and the way in which Jobs felt so betrayed and it caused this adversarial reaction and nobody won. Suddenly, you had Apple going into the maps business as a result of, of that. Uh, Apple users getting a worse experience, Google being denied all the data from iOS and Google doing its, you know, get up on the stage at io and talk about how android's coming after ios like it was it was made to be much more adversarial than it needed to be and everybody lost as a result it's one of the sort of really interesting what ifs i mean i really don't think that apple would have ever moved on google in the way that they did as far as maps and and potentially other things like the Apple could still switch to Bing at some point. Like I don't think this would have ever gone down to the extent that it had. I, again, I'm, who knows? And this is why it's a big what if. It's hard to read into mm. these sorts of things. But at the same time, you can also totally understand Google's perspective. Google came up in a Windows world where Windows absolutely would cut them off at the knees if they if they could. Like in the fact we already talked about it a couple of weeks ago, Google, Windows did try to cut off Netscape at the knees and succeeded. And they just sort of miscalculated and didn't realize where the actual point of leverage is, which was which was in the browser. So Google, again, you go back to where a company was born and its sort of core sort of experience, mm. and that's where culture comes from. You can understand why Google would view Apple adversarially, even as they were partners, because they'd are they were raised going up against Windows, which was you know again much more ruthless. Yeah, totally. It's it's funny. There are all these prisoner's dilemmas games going on and if the trust is maintained long enough then everybody wins but as soon as one party causes any break in the trust it's all over if i am apple i do not want to be reliant on uh uh, on mapping services which is a critical feature of the value that i provide with my phone i don't want to be reliant on google like could I imagine a world in which they cut that off in order to get people to switch over to Android. It's a possibility. And especially given the history that Jobs had with Apple, uh, all uh, the the lesson he learned about the applications like Adobe and Microsoft being more important than the operating system, it's it's suddenly you see that that lesson flash up again and it's like okay guys this is this could end up in nuclear war we need to we need to start developing these services ourselves because if they get pulled our ability to sell to our customers is jeopardized yeah it's a i think this is actually a really great situation to put it in game theory terms because there is sort of an optimal solution but it's it's not stable it's like an, it, mm. it, there is an equilibrium in which everyone does better but the the inherent instability means that you're going to end up somewhere else where you're right it's not best for everyone there it is impossible to get the best in my estimation it is impossible to get the best possible experience on a phone which to my mind would be apple hardware ios 
and Google services. Like you can have the Google mm-hmm. services, but there's friction involved, right? They're not the defaults. You have to purposely go to them. All the sorts of things. You know, if I want to use Google Assistant, I need to open up the Google Assistant app and then use Google Assistant. I can't just long press the button. I could on a on a phone, but then I have to put up with you know the various issues with Android that mm-hmm. I personally am not am not a fan on. You know, some of the user experience stuff and all that sort of again. The, my personal experience, I know some of you might disagree, but it, it's a, but that, that maybe it, it's probably inevitable. Like it's easy to point fingers and blame whoever. This is pro, it was probably inevitable that we end up where we're at. Which is a pretty good segue back to Uber and Google. Right. So here, I mean, it's the same situation. When you saw that Google was invested in Uber, it seemed obvious in the long run that you would have this marriage of Google self-driving mm. technology and the Uber network. It's It really is a perfect match because it meets the needs of the other. There's nothing about Uber that screams like we're going to be a technologically proficient company because their business is not reliant on technology. Their the technology is an enabler of a network that mm-hmm. is it's the network mm-hmm. that that from which Uber drives its power. It's the network, it's not the technology. Google is the ex- exact opposite. They're great at technology, they're not great at customer service and and building these sort of network effects and we've seen them their weak attempts at social and whatnot. There they were such complementary fits and in some respects, it's almost – I said before the phone is more egregious, but actually I think this is more egregious because there really was no overlap. Google was an investor. Like, I know. It's on. amazing. The, the, it, it, is, it is insane that, 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 this, that it came to this. It is just insane. But nevertheless, here we are. So I think both companies have made mistakes, but I think that Uber has made worse ones. And, and this is – mm. So even though I think I blame Google for the divorce, I think the mistake that Uber made was Uber's response to Google was to try to compete with Google on Google's terms. That is, Uber tried to become a self-driving car company also. The problem is, <laughs> one, don't compete with Google on Google's terms. That's like the rule of business number one. You're, you're, <laughs> Apple is not competing with Google on Google's terms. They're not trying to put Apple Maps on Android and compete with Google. They are competing with Google on their terms, which is M- Apple Maps is going to be the default, <laughs> whether you like it or not. And and it's an unfair. Is it unfair? It is unfair, but that's how we're going to win. And that's like from a business perspective, that's totally legitimate in what they should do. You don't want to be competing with Google on their terms. And this is the reason why you could even still give Uber a chance because Uber had the business model. So if they if their car driving technology could just be good enough or soon enough and come to market even a year or two after Google, the time it would take Google to scale and actually get all these cars produced and actually get the the network going and people using it, there was time. There was maybe not a ton of time, but there was time for Uber to sort of catch up. But still, I'm still very nervous about competing with Google head on when it comes to the technology. And the the irony of the whole situation is that Uber, with its position, uh, could have started to work with another existing technology company. And the fact they have cars on the road, they have the network, they have people using it, they have a whole bunch of... They could have partnered. This is a... In the same way it made sense for Uber to have worked with Google, it makes sense for them to find another partner. There are other people that they could have worked with to get there. And instead, they chose to go it alone. And it is a big and expensive and hairy problem and one in which 
this isn't this isn't their core competency that like you said it was it was much more in the operations and building on top building on top of technology that already existed as opposed to creating new technology from scratch that's exactly it and this is exactly the danger that comes from what you were railing about earlier in the podcast about thinking that it's the technology that makes the difference you combine that with one of my other favorite axioms that the most dangerous situation to be is where you don't understand your own success or your own failure. Mm. And that's exactly what yes. happened to Uber. Uber's advantage derived from the network. It did not derive from technology. And so the appropriate response is understanding where your value comes from and then partner to get everything else. Make your get compliments. There's all sorts of companies desperate to develop self-driving technology. And there's there's sort of this big consortium right now with like Intel, they, they've got Mobileye and they're partnering with BMW and like Delphi's plugged into them. And it is you could argue that Google with a sort of integrated approach will probably get to market first, but then but the modular sort of partnership approach, you combine that with the already present go to market position of Uber, that's where Uber should have focused on. Don't waste all this money trying to compete with Google on their terms. Realize you own the critical, the, f- the future is not just self-driving cars. You can't think about it in terms of just the product. You have to think about it in terms of the entire, or just the technology. Think about it in terms of a product perspective, which entails mm. thinking about the business model, entails thinking about the go to market. And Uber owned the critical part. They should have partnered for all this sort of stuff. And then they could have done it, they wouldn't have you know, they wouldn't have upset their drivers. It could have been a sort of, you know, it wouldn't have been their own investment. They would have wasted so all this money on this. And it would have been a so much more cogent and faster and less legally risky, we now know, way to to come to market with self-driving technology. And instead, they went and tried to do it themselves. And uh, it's, it's uh, and and I mean, the the... The again, the extent to which uh, coming back to this, Google will just solve the problem from a technology perspective, and then we'll suddenly win. the the way the market is structured is almost as if there are two cable companies with all this infrastructure and all the cost of rolling out the infrastructure that they've already undertaken. And for for those two companies, Uber and Lyft or Didi, if you want to include that in different markets and so on, once you've rolled out the infrastructure, the ease with which you can plug the technology and gently scale it up uh, and every time you put another one of these vehicles on the road, self-driving vehicles, you save money is incredible. But if you haven't built out that underlying infrastructure for someone like Google to come along and just compete directly would have required them to roll out on mass. Because like you said, if I'm looking for a self-driving car, yeah, the cost matters, but it's also the amount of time it's going to take for them to pick me up. And if there is a human driver three minutes away and I have to pay a couple of dollars more, I will do that as opposed to waiting 10 minutes for the Google vehicle to to, to turn up. And the amount of capital and everything Google has to learn to get to an operational point of just like, well, we have the self-driving technology. Completely destroying the company's margins along the way. All right. It's just like, oh, once they have the technology puff, it's like it's going to be everywhere and no one can compete. No, that's not how it was going to work. But the extent to which this war has got so brutal and now Google partnering with Lyft, suddenly 
suddenly the tables turn. Right. I didn't see this coming from a million miles away, even though it's an obvious move. Just because I, I, maybe I'm just so like disillusioned with Google's ability to think cogently about this stuff that like, and they screwed up the Uber thing so badly. Like I did, I really mm. didn't see it coming. And by the way, they didn't just partner with Lyft. They also partnered with Ola in India. So th- this is a clear high level shift in strategy. They decided the go to market for self-driving cars is partnering with transportation service companies, which is the exact right strategy. The problem is the, mm-hmm. the relationship with Uber is so destroyed that they're not going to partner with them. But th- and this is the real existential problem with Uber is one, Google now has a route to market. But two, the reason the the big reason why uh, I mean Uber was profitable a couple years ago uh, in or they said they were profitable in most of their major markets and if you think about the economics of the business you would expect that to be the case but then Lyft raised a bunch of money like did a last gasp we're going to fight for share and Lyft has been spending money like crazy over over, over like throughout mm-hmm. 2015 2016 and you got to this point 2016 where Lyft wrote this big post and this future and self driving cars blah blah and it was seemed pretty obvious that they were for sale they they and there was reports they they didn't they weren't meeting the projections mm-hmm. they barely gained a percentage point or two despite spending just tons and tons of money taking out Uber and it looked like it was over and they were going to finally exit and Uber was going to consolidate the market and, and actually start turning a profit. And then this this happened. These troubles happened uh, with, 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 with the, the, troubles. The, the troubles Yeah, with Uber. And what happened? Suddenly in April, Lyft raised $600 million. Because what the market's so big, the opportunity is so big that even if there's a chance, there only needs to be a chance. And suddenly Uber showed there might be a chance. And boom, Lyft got money. And now And now... Uber has to waste, spend hundreds of millions of dollars to burn down Lyft's new cash stash. The problem is that Lyft, now that it's partnered with Google, Lyft will never have trouble raising money again because this is the, it's the single best way to invest in self-driving cars. If you want to invest in self-driving cars, you could buy stock in Google, but the, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to actually get the focus there because Google is, is mostly search. If you want to invest in self-driving cars, invest in Lyft. That is now the single best way to invest in it. To your absolute credit, and I was not a believer. I was so skeptical when you wrote this. You you talked about this with Lyft at the time. You're like, these guys look like they're on the rocks for all these reasons. But you know what? It's probably a pretty sound investment just on the possibility that Uber screws this whole thing up. And these guys swoop in. And I was like, my God, Ben, really? The, the extent to which that uh, Uber would have to screw up to get to the point where this makes sense. And lo and behold, here we are. And not just Uber's screw-ups, the the layering on of what you just described, This the best technology or, and the best technologists have suddenly – it's almost out of spite. Like the relationship is so bad. We're going to work with the number two player just to screw you. And it kind of feels that way. It's, it's, it, it, it is. That's what it feels like. It's, it's gotten so bad. Even though we have this investment, we don't care. We're going to screw you. We're going to bless these guys. And now, uh, the, the hope of raising the money to knock out the player and outspend them and outsubsidize them, that's not going to happen. They, they have to, they are now in this. This is now a two horse race for the long haul. Yeah. I, I honestly am. I've completely flipped on Uber because they were like, they were on the verge of pushing Lyft out. Lyft was so yeah. on the rocks. And, 
and once they did that, then they would have the United States. Because we've seen other people try to come in. Like, no, WIFT had established a large enough position that they could at least sustain their position. But you saw several mm. other people try to enter in, in the United States, like New York City and stuff like Get and and Juno and some other ones, and they all failed. Mm-hmm. It's it's so it, people are like, oh, it's so easy to enter the market. No, consumer <laughs> habitual markets are impossible to enter. There's a reason why P and G and all these CPG companies have made all the money forever because it's a hard market to Yes, are you selling commodities? Yes, commodities are hard. They're really hard. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> not to write. They were, they were almost there. And now it's like, how can Uber ever turn a profit again? Like, it, it, or <laughs> to the, if not that they ever did. It's really hard to see. And it's not like they're going to, you really think they're going to beat Google when it comes to self-driving cars? I, I, I don't see it. I mean, it's really hard to see. It, it, it's hard to see how they, where they go from here, frankly. This was just one that I was not expecting to to the tide to turn. You're right. It was on the rocks. They were trying to GM was sniffing around and I don't know, maybe it's my 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 skepticism, but when you're trying to sell yourself to a last generation company like from the industrial area, that's generally a pretty bad sign. And the extent between then and now that this this is now a market entirely up for grabs, it's just it's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, Uber still has all the lead and advantages we talked about. The, the the problem is that the you know it's just hard to see them. You know, they're 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 holding off Lyft by both spending outrageously, and th- there's just a lack of you know this is another big problem that I wrote wrote about this week. Just a lack of, of pragmatism. Sometimes you have to know when to stop. And this has always been Uber's problem, right? It's Uber's problems internally. Mm. It's with their culture. It's with everything. And this is the it's you can't just be aggressive all the time in China. There were two taxi companies, uh, Kwaidi and Didi, and and one was backed by Alibaba, one was backed by Tencent, among many other investors. And they were locked in this ruinous subsidy war. They were just spending billions and billions of dollars, and neither was gaining a, a percentage point of market share. <laughs> and they finally realized, and Alibaba and Tencent are like mortal enemies. And like Tencent is the biggest threat to Alibaba, just a massive because they they own the customer touch point and they're building up e-commerce and and they're partnered with JD and all this sort of things, and. Even these mortal enemies, and this is something I've always sort of admired about business in China. It's very pragmatic. They're just like, you know what? We could either keep spending billions of dollars for nothing, just to maintain our position, or in this one area, we can bury the hatchet and partner. And they bury the hatchet and partner, and they and DD is now dominant, and DD killed Uber. And ironically, even though I, I thought Uber going into China was a terrible decision, and they got their rear end kicked, as I expected, and wasted tons of money doing it. They were saved by Chinese pragmatism. Didi, instead of just waiting and spending Uber to the ground, made a deal with Uber to give Uber 17% of the company and Uber exits. And that's Uber saving grace. It's like the, it's the Yahoo Alibaba thing all over again. The irony is, from what I've read, that Uber had the opportunity to be pragmatic with Lyft. Yep. Uh, they had the opportunity to buy them out. Uh, Lyft was asking for 18% of the company. Uber, Travis offered 8%. Uh, the talks broke down, and now here we are. Now, now both competitors will be stuck in this battle of uh, th- this battle of fighting for market share with basically unlimited capital flowing into both because both have a path to survival. There's not going to be a a consolidation to what to what happened in the Chinese market where there's one dominant player that actually turns a profit. It's going to be this duopoly on an ongoing basis. So they are going to be lock, locking horns now for the foreseeable future. Well, the other thing is, I mean, I, I don't, does Uber have unlimited capital? 
I, at, at this point, I mean, they've been raising capital from, you know, stranger and stranger places. Mm-hmm. And again, we don't know all the details of the Google with partnership, but presuming it is mm, what it seems true. to be on its surface, which, where would you rather put money? Like, where's your long-term? They've basically ensured that the human-operated model is probably not going to be profitable in the U.S. because they're going to be in a subsidy war for the foreseeable future. What's going to change that? Self-driving cars. Who's going to get self-driving cars first? Uh, yeah, that's yeah. I, t- I totally see where you're going. It's, yeah. I, I would rather, yeah, I would rather buy into Lyft right now than do Uber. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Uh, and that's not that I have the choice from, or not that I would if I did, but it's insane that it's got to that point because it it was literally two less than two years ago. And I, I agreed with your assessment. It looked like they were on the rocks. And well, to be fair, that's um, when I wrote the, so, that's when I wrote the Lyft is still a good investment in, in, in 2015. Yeah. For, and I'm so glad I wrote yeah, that because you that, that's right. like my, uh, yeah. cause I've been an Uber bull, but like, I mean, I've, it's, it's always, it's never been a sure thing. No, I, 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 it's, it's impressive the extent to which this company has managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> and it gets, it gets to, I mean, Uber has been so aggressive and, and in many respects that's been, as we've discussed, has been a good thing. And they've made changes that are, that are enforced through changes that needed to be made and took mm. a company like Uber and a CEO like, like Klanik to do. But you have to have balance. You have to have both sides. And the, you know, the way I really think the self-driving thing in general gets at the way the company is actually has failed consistently to sort of think strategically about its business and how it will succeed in the long run. Yes. The, the, the fight, 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 win, win, win. And it's just, we're going to pick every, pick every battle and assume we can win every battle. And I, I, there aren't many folks, business or otherwise in history that have managed to open up a number of fronts, wars on lots of fronts and end up in a, in a good position. You just, you have to be, uh, uh, you have to, discretion is the better part of valor as they say you need to pick your battles there are some that you will win and there are some that you are not equipped to win and you need to recognize those and figure out ways around it this is the other thing to uh, really appreciate too is i i wrote about this uh, i think i think sometime last year about does uber have a strategy problem and and there's this idea where when a company has too much money they don't have to make sort of hard decisions and when the money dries up then they realize that they don't have like a functional business model which you know you could argue argue applies to uber it certainly applies to lots of other companies but i think there's there's a similar dynamic where when a market is so good and a market opportunity is so great that you have the same sort of thing where just by being aggressive and in the market you succeed mm-hmm. and you and you make poor strategic decisions along the way that don't reveal themselves until the going gets get, gets tough. You see this in social in social networking. You saw all sorts of terribly operated companies mm-hmm. that made poor decisions kind of take off in social networking and then sort of fall away. And and to Facebook's credit, yes, Facebook rode the social like Facebook's success first and foremost is because they digitized offline relationships. It's a massive market, but they made enough of the right decisions along the way and avoided mm-hmm. enough of the bad ones to to not. So when the going got rough, they they could still they could still pull through, and I, you know it certainly is fair to wonder if uh, you know Uber did the opposite. It yeah, 
I, I, I think they did. Anyway, that was, thank you for humoring me a little bit because I, I still feel as if the number of times we cover this business stuff, and I think people hear it and they internalize it to a greater or lesser extent, but every time it gets to be one of these conversations around engineering and business, it, it people automatically assume that best engineering wins. And like you said, I wish we were in a world where that was always the case. Uh, the, the open internet enabled Google to spring up and everybody benefited as a result of that. But to assume that will be the case is naive. And if you just throw engineering at a problem without considering the context of the business relationships and who owns the customer, you are setting yourself up to fail. That's a, that's a really interesting point. I think I, I, there's a sort of dichotomy, I'm not sure people f- always appreciate, between the interests of established companies' technology and like startups, for example. The mm. larger the company, the more interest there is in sort of gumming things up, in distribution being an advantage, in, you know, having leverage. Whereas the smaller company you are, the more interest you have in there being a level playing field and being easy to go to market and, and, and reach people. Mm. And there's a tendency to think that everyone's always on the same page. It's just like net neutrality debates, for example. Obviously, everybody in tech right. supports net neutrality. Like, really? I mean, why? why? Mm. No, they, they don't because the the relative position in the market is different. And yes, there is tech versus not tech. But within tech, there are very sort of fundamental divisions between companies, where that their lifestyle, what sort of position they already have in the market, and and it, those matter. They absolutely do. They absolutely do. Our thanks to Mailchimp for sponsoring this episode of Exponent, and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. Right, bye bye.